Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, James Bartholomew discusses the welfare of nations. Thea Brooke-Knight talks about fair housing in the Supreme Court. Mindy Finn addresses public opinion regarding nationalism and populism. And Chris Preble talks about how to cut military spending. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. President Donald Trump talked a good game on essentially imposing all manner of tariffs on products that are shipped in from overseas. And then, as just before he became president, talked a good game about punishing companies that threaten to uh, increase production outside the United States, uh, cajoling some to uh, at least make it look like they have seen the light and are going to keep much of their production in the United States. And now that he actually is president, uh, what have we seen so far on trade? To talk about that, we'll talk talking to Dan Eikenson, director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Pearson, senior fellow in trade policy studies here at Cato. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. Good morning. So to begin this conversation uh, here, to you, Dan Eikenson, uh, what do we expect to see from uh, President Trump. And of course, as we record this, not all of uh, the president's team have been uh, confirmed. But what do we expect to see, at least in the next couple of months, regarding uh, trade policy from this president? Yeah, that's a good point that his, uh, his Secretary of Commerce has not been confirmed, his USTR has not been confirmed yet. But you got to hand it to Trump. Uh, unlike previous candidates for president, he's at least made good on some of his promises from the campaign trail. He uh, promised to withdraw the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, and he's done that. I think that was a really bad idea. Uh, we've talked about it before. Maybe we'll get into it more later. Um, he has uh, announced that his administration is going to reopen the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, uh, which is something he said he would do. Uh, I'm not immediately opposed to that. I think the motivation that he has for reopening it is, is, is poorly considered. Uh, he sees our relationship with Mexico as uh, a, a losing proposition currently. He thinks the rules of NAFTA have uh, uh, led to a trade deficit with Mexico and that, that Mexico is cheating and that we need to uh, change the terms so that uh, we can achieve a trade balance or a trade surplus. I look, at the NAFTA was written 25 years ago, and it certainly can afford an update to be brought into the internet age. There are a lot of services that, that didn't exist then that we trade in now. Uh, the internet really didn't exist uh, in 1992, but you know, NAFTA went into effect in 94, but the rules were effectively written by the end of 1992. So um, on the reform side, that is, that's on the table. But at the same time, he has threatened uh, duties on, on, on Mexico, on imports from Mexico, on imports from China. He's gone after uh, Germany for manipulating its own currency, which it's not even its own currency. It's, it's the euro. Um, so he is foreshadowing um, a sort of um, uh, difficult confrontational relations with some of our major, major trading partners going forward, and that, that's disconcerting. Yeah. Uh, one of my observations is that so far he's doing it all off the top of his head. All of his trade policy is just kind of things he talked about on the campaign, and it's kind of what he thinks would be fun. It may be better once he gets his three-person team in place, Peter Navarro, who's already serving as the head of the National Trade Council at the White House, but then both uh, Wilbur Ross and Bob Lighthizer, uh, Ross at Commerce and Lighthizer, a U.S. trade, trade representative. Uh, none of them are ardent free traders. They all have some protectionist tendencies. But they at least would be able to get together and think about what type of policy should they advocate that they are willing to live with over time. I mean, I think there's a different level of analysis that would go into place once the team is there that we're just not seeing now. You say they're not ardent free traders. I mean, they, they, I wouldn't call them free free traders by any, by any stretch. Uh, Lighthizer is a, is a uh, profound skeptic 
of the multilateral trading system, the World Trade Organization, its dispute settlement body. Uh, Wilbur Ross has personally prospered from protectionism and his steel uh, um, uh, industry transactions, his textile industry transactions. And Peter Navarro, I mean, the guy calls the national income identity uh, an economic growth formula. He has said that the goal of NAFTA renegotiation is to undo all these supply chains that have undergirded North American uh, production integration, and that, that could be disastrous. So here's something to consider r related to all of this uh, with respect to global supply chains and how uh, tight those supply chains are. There's not a lot of slack in a lot of them, and that's been a, a, a huge change over the last 20-plus uh, years with respect to trade and, and how we produce the things that, that we want to consume. Uh, it, it seems it is possible that fairly small uh, changes to trade policy could have pretty profound effects on availability and prices of basic goods. Oh, absolutely. I just had an opportunity to speak at a steel conference in Mexico. Not surprisingly, they were very interested in all these issues. One of the examples that was given and uh, that I, I thought was kind of interesting is that a significant percentage of the auto wiring harnesses for all vehicles assembled in North America, those harnesses are made in Mexico because it is labor intensive. And then the harnesses are shipped to the United States or Canada and they're put into vehicles. It, that's just one example. You take more parts of an automobile that require some handwork, and and the supply chains that you re referenced, Caleb, were, are, are built to allow different industries in the three three countries to do what they do best, and then put all the parts together where it makes most sense. So if if those supply chains were cut by an import tariff, we could see fewer vehicles being made in the United States, and we might import more complete cars from other countries. So, this, again, the weird, perverse effects of, of making changes to uh, trade policy. Uh, going back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, Dan Eikenson, you said that the president essentially made good on his uh, a decision that uh, we would not be, the United States would not be participating in it. Uh, I read a lot immediately after that saying, well, who wins in this? Well, it's China, which it seems to be an odd turn of events if you believe that, uh, as President Trump appears to, that trade is a zero-sum game. If we win, they lose. But it appears that we lose and uh, China wins. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's one conclusion to reach. Um, the, the, the TPP was characterized um, as uh, an enterprise that would serve to isolate China, or it was it didn't include China, so um, it would um, it would be at a disadvantage. And by sort of seeding the field, China can now write the rules of trade. I, I think that's a bit overwrought. I mean, I I, I think the T I see the TPP as an was it was an opportunity to rein in the problems that are so often attributed to Chinese practices. I saw China as wanting to join the TPP. Um, the TPP was an extension of Pax Americana, really, into the 21st century. I mean, the, the, the rules of trade that have governed international trade since the end of the Second World War were authored by the United States and led by the United States, very successful uh, through the end of the last century. But it's been 22 years since we've negotiated another multilateral trade round, and we're looking for alternatives. To me, the TPP was that alternative. Instead of consensus-driven, you find uh, critical mass, come up with your rules, and then you say to countries along the way, hey, if you can meet these standards, you can join. So it was a living agreement that could get bigger and bigger. China was going to see all of its major trading partners joining the TPP, was going to recognize that it was on the outside looking in, and would say, okay, what do we need to do to get in? And that, to me, was an important carrot that the United States had to, to, to discipline Chinese behavior. Now, now we just have sticks. I, I would just comment that we saw that d dynamic that Dan just described play out in the years in which China was preparing to enter the WTO. The World Trade Organization rules were initially way beyond what China could achieve when it started the process. I think it took 15 or 16 years altogether. And 
in the final years, they were really wrestling very actively with what they needed to do in terms of changing both their internal policies and some of their trade policies to meet WTO requirements. And at the end of the day, they did it. Now, some of the implementation that they've done since then has left a lot to be desired. But nonetheless, they went through a very deliberate process of coming up to speed. I think the same thing likely would have happened with TPP. Just one TPP provision that, that uh, uh, speaks to this is that TPP has a, a section dealing with state-owned enterprises, which aren't such a big deal, really, for most of the TPP members. Huge deal for China. And so TPP put a marker down of what China should prepare for if it wanted to enter that agreement. So Trump has withdrawn us from, from the TPP, but I, I don't necessarily think that means it's dead. I, I think that the world, as, as upset as they are and as surprised and shocked as they are by the U.S. withdrawal, would welcome us back, I think, if and when we decide that we've made a mistake. And so uh, th this could come to fruition again down the road. In the meantime, the United States or uh, the Trump administration seems much more interested in pursuing bilateral trade agreements, and pursuing one with Japan seems to be realistically at the top of the, of the, at the front of the queue, uh, because all of the terms that needed to be worked out were effectively worked out in the TPP. And uh, so if they want to pursue bilateral, it's almost like if the, the agreement is right there right for the taking. Why bilaterals? It, it seems that, uh, you know, typically trade rounds are, you know, multiple groups, uh, trade representatives from various countries discussing things. They put it all together. Something gets rejected. It goes back around again and that sort of thing. Uh, why bilateral trade agreements? Is it just because they're easier to negotiate? I, I, I've been trying to figure out what, what's motivating uh, them. Certainly from an economic perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes more sense to have more people, more countries, more wealth within the same set of rules. So there are 12 countries in the TPP, so U.S. importers and exporters can deal with uh, a, a set of rules for 11 other countries. But if you have bilaterals with each of them, you have 11 different agreements, 11 different sets of rules that could mean different product standards, which, which has implications for economies of scale and production, um, compliance costs and inventorying costs. So from an economics perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. From a political perspective, I think the administration has in mind, uh, if we have bilateral deals, it's easier to revisit them every couple of years. It's easier to use U.S. leverage to say, hey, we didn't hit our goals, and our goals were trade balance or a trade surplus, so therefore we need to tweak the terms of this agreement so that we can export more to you. And I think that's what they have in mind, that, that it's more, they're more capable of exerting leverage and bullying. Yeah. One other reason to favor m broader deals is, is that um, there's this, there are resource limitations in USTR. They only have about 250 people. If you have to negotiate 11 bilaterals as compared to one 12-country plurilateral, you just don't have people to do that. You know, it, it, so there, there are real synergies from getting several countries together to do a negotiation. You only have to do it once and you're done. One of the things, Dan, I can say that we have discussed in the past is as early as the 1930s, Congress uh, took significant steps and has continued to take some steps toward ceding specific trade authorities to the executive branch, uh, specifically to the President of the United States. And this administration, it seems to be the first that is willing to move essentially in the opposite direction of uh, other presidents in the past. And what just what kind of authorities are we talking about here? Well, I mean, o over the years, um, between the Civil War and, and, and 1930, uh, tariff policy was constantly in flux. When Republicans controlled the Congress, tariffs would go up. When Democrats controlled the Congress, tariffs would go down and go back and forth. At, after the infamous Smoot-Hawley in 1930, which led to massive trade wars, um, uh, I think Republicans came around to recognizing that maybe we need to restrain ourselves. And they thought, you know, maybe we can liberalize trade. There was something called the 1934 Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. We could try to liberalize trade more. 
but in conjunction with that and in conjunction with subsequent trade liberalizing uh, agreements and, and legislation over the years, the, the Congress responded to concerns about, well, what if because of this trade liberalization, we are flooded with imports, and there's unfair imports, or subsidized imports, or there's a national security threat, or a health and safety threat. What are we supposed to do? Well, let's delegate to the president some authority to respond to that. So the president does have authority under about a dozen different statutes to increase tariffs. Conditions need to be met, uh, and in most cases, there's judicial review. But throughout history, it's always been tra this, this transfer of this delegation of power has been under the assumption that the president was a free trader or the president had a more internationalist view and that he wouldn't think of protectionism as a, as a path toward economic growth. In response to that, Senator Mike Lee from Utah has prepared legislation, the uh, Global Accountabilities Act. Global Trade Accountability Act, yes, thank you. And uh, the goal there is to allow Congress to veto any presidential action in trade that Congress would disagree with. That could be very helpful if it was in the law now, but of course it's not yet. Uh, but I think that may represent a first step at Congress taking back its constitutional authority to regulate the foreign commerce of the United States. I, I agree with you. I think that's a great, great piece of legislation. The there weren't any co-sponsors, co and I think, you know, there's this honeymoon period and nobody really wants to poke Trump in the eye just yet. Um, but clearly, if he does start to abuse his authority, I, I could see Congress getting on board with that. You know, it, it would probably need to have enough support to override a veto, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm glad that Mike Lee has done that. I guess moving forward, you know, Dan Atkinson, when we've talked you know, in years past about trade, I always bring up the notion of a unilateral disarmament with respect to tariffs and uh, trade restrictions upon uh, on the United States. That is no longer anywhere in uh, the realm of possibility. The Overton window has uh, gotten ever narrower on uh, the possibility of simply saying, hey, you want to trade with us? Let's do it. Yeah. No, it's always been uh, a very remote uh, but tantalizing possibility. Um, you know, every couple of years, although over the, for the past four or five years it's been suspended, uh, there, there is a move in Congress, a miscellaneous tariff bill, which, which eliminates tariffs for a short period of time on you know, and intermediate goods. Uh, so there is at least the ember of, um, of, of a motive to reduce trade barriers that way. I mean, look, half the value of our imports are intermediate goods, capital equipment. Wouldn't it be great if uh, our government recognized that we can uh, make the United States a much more attractive place for production and value-added activity if we didn't tax those imported intermediate goods? So, you know, I could see Trump recognizing that at some point, but first he has to recognize that imports are actually good for the economy. <laughs> I would say a couple other things about unilateral disarmament. One is that Brexit keeps the issue alive, at least for a while, in Britain, because although it's unlikely the government there will decide to leave the EU and have no import duties, that argument is being made, because their two most successful colonies, or two of their more successful colonies, Hong Kong and Singapore, have done that. They have no import tariffs, and they are absolutely globally competitive. Uh, the, the, other, um, the other thing about unilateral disarmament is that those of us who understand it and really like the idea have lots of opportunities to explain it in contraposition to the policies that Trump is talking about. So, you know, yes, we aren't going to get it done today, but we can explain why tariffs are a bad idea because we're so much better off if we don't have them. Uh, Dan Ikenson, you mentioned intermediate goods, the half of the value of our imports that are represented by uh, intermediate goods. Is there any meaningful distinction for trade policymakers to draw between intermediate goods and finished goods? No, uh, in terms of in term, working in terms to of, reduce tariffs? Well, let's say in, in terms of uh, if uh, President Trump and his uh, trade people come to the understanding, oh, yes, of course, intermediate goods are important. 
we need them to make stuff. So let's not tax those. Right. Let's just tax the finished stuff right. that we import in order to keep whatever you know current account surplus uh, uh, as small as possible. <laughs> right. No, I mean the the rationale, the economic arguments behind getting rid of tariffs on end products is the same, really. Uh, but we are living in a in a competitive. Uh, economy, global economy, we are competing for investment with the rest of the world. Um, if we want to attract investment and retain investment here, we need to make the conditions for producing here uh, as competitive as possible. In, in, in 2008, 2009, during the Great Recession, uh, that era, G20 ministers were getting together every month. Uh, everybody was worried about a, a, a trade war, and they were getting together and reassuring one another that they wouldn't engage in tit-for-tat protection. The Canadians at that time, as well as the Mexicans, both decided, you know what, since our exporters are going to see their revenues contract because the global economy is contracting, let's at least help them out by, let's, let's at least help our producers out by getting rid of uh, duties on imports, on their intermediate goods. So Canada and Mexico got rid of most of their intermediate goods duties re in recognition of the fact that it's a competitive move uh, and that it's good for business. And it's universally that is the case. And, uh, you know, we just need to overcome the politics to get there. I understand that the tariff revenues of the United States now are really not that great. I, I looked at it a while ago. I think it's 20 or $25 billion a year. And in the context of federal spending of, what, in excess of $2 trillion? I've lost track. Yeah. Um, it, the tariff revenues are really very small. And so it wouldn't be difficult to envision a tax reform that would end all tariffs because the, you don't need the money, and, and then allow the uh, manufacturing economy to be fully efficient, as well as allowing people to get world-priced bananas and shirts. Among other things. Among <laughs> other things, sure. All right, so, uh, you know, we all have hopes that uh, uh, President Trump and his trade people will say to themselves, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And I guess the, the, the real question is in terms of you know, potentially a, dec a decline in GDP, heaven forbid, or some uh, continuation of a trend. What do you think even uh, people who believe what they do, as uh, Navarro, Lighthizer, um, and Ross believe as they do, what data could they see in the next uh, couple of years to say, yeah, th this didn't work. Let's try something else. <laughs> well, U.S. Investment in the United States uh, has been very strong over the years. Uh, we were the number one destination for foreign direct investment, and we still are. But it's gone from 39% of the world's stock to about 17% over the course of the 21st century. Um, if we see capital flight, if we see um, U.S. companies picking up and uh, setting up shop elsewhere, if we see foreign companies not uh, operating here. If we see retaliation, if we see our exports go down, if we see a decline in trade overall, uh, that would be a pretty strong indication that something that was done administratively uh, has has uh, led to these results. I assume Trump does not want to kill the economy, and I agree with your premise that they would want to figure out a way to reverse course. Um, but they haven't done anything yet. They're still threatening. Uh, tariffs against China, uh, tariffs against Mexico. So maybe we will get to the point uh, we'll be able to head it off before it uh, even comes to pass. So far, the only thing that they've done are uh, try to get some subsidies for a, a company that's based in the United States, right? Uh, you, you mean carrier? Car yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and, 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 and Trump has done a good job tweeting and, and, and scaring U.S. businesses into, uh, into silence and getting in line behind his ideas. Caleb, I think another indicator that could get the administration's attention is further declines in the, their poll numbers. The president already has set a record of being the fastest president in history to go to a majority disapproval. He, he did it six months ahead of Bill Clinton. I mean, and this was huge. No, uh, but and let's remember Bill Clinton's first 90 days. <laughs> yes, that was really uh, an interesting time for those of us old enough to recall that. Um, if the president's team does things that are harmful to, for instance, the agricultural community, 
that can come back and bite him in the poll numbers in a big way right in his base. And I think that would get noticed. Understand, there's already a lot of unhappiness in agriculture that he took away the TPP because the benefits to the U.S. farming community from TPP were really great, not just from Japan, which is a big customer already but with really high tariffs, but also Vietnam, where the population is large and growing, and Malaysia. There, there were some real benefits for U.S. agriculture. Poof, they're gone. Now, if the, if the administration takes the next step and messes up trade with, with Canada and, and Mexico, it just compounds the problem. Mexico is, the th I think, the third largest U.S. agricultural customer. Canada, I think, is the first, and China's the second. I mean, y you can do a lot of damage here. China imports more soybeans than any other country in the world. In, you know, in the U.S. exports half of, of all its soybeans. If I'm... It, the Chinese leadership, and I'm thinking, you know, I really want to get the attention of these Americans. Restricting imports of U.S. soybeans would, would change the tenor of the debate here in this country in a hurry. So there, there are things that can happen that could shift this discussion. All right. We're going to leave it there. Dan Pearson, Senior Fellow in Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Eikenson, Director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. A new piece out by uh, Dan Eikenson right now is on the, the possibility of a looming trade war with China. You can find that and uh, other of Cato scholars' work on trade at our website, cato.org. Is the modern welfare state still viable? In his new Cato book, The Welfare of Nations, James Bartholomew examines welfare systems around the world and documents the strength and weaknesses of their approaches to poverty, education, health care, retirement, and other issues. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. Some people think state welfare is new, but it's certainly not. Um, I found records of it in ancient Greece and it's quite well known uh, that it existed to a large extent in ancient Rome. And in fact, you can go to Rome now, you can go and visit um, Trajan's Market, which is where uh, the Emperor Trajan uh, put up a magnificent building which was considered one of the wonders of the world for the purpose of administering free, free corn to the population. It was a huge enterprise. So it dates back a long time. But the difference in modern civilization is that it has become all-encompassing. Our lives from the moment born in a government hospital uh, and then through compulsory government primary schooling, compulsory uh, next stage of schooling, secondary schooling, all this, uh, the benefits you may get for getting a, uh, a subsidized uh, apartment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it frames the lives, especially of the poor. In fact, for the elite, and I guess most people here are part of the elite, we are not touched as much by this state apparatus as poor people. And we've, it's an effort of the imagination to think what it's like for them. Uh, and around the world, I contend that the welfare states of the world have done a, a considerable amount of harm. Of course, they've aimed to do good, but they have done uh, a considerable amount of harm. And it was... Each, each country I visited thought it was unique. And of course, the, each one is different. Um, but it was like Groundhog Day. You wake up in, in Paris and you find you're in a, in a country with mass unemployment. Another place you find the healthcare is either ruinously expensive or else rationed and people die. You find that single parenting has increased Universally, there are a few small exceptions, but even they are beginning to rise. You find what you call projects that have gone wrong, that have literally been blown up. That's not unique to the States. It's happened in Britain and in France, just to begin with. You find pensions that are unfunded and that are huge debt implied in them. You find the national debt has risen and risen, that welfare as a proportion of spending of governments has risen. You find low growth. You find high taxes, you find crime and incivility, and you find growing dishonesty and black economies. So, I mean, I see a lot of things that have gone wrong, and um, I think we should regard this event, this creation of welfare states, as one of the major events in world history. 
to be likened to the change from a feudal society through the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, through the communist revolutions, we've now got the welfare state revolution. And we should be aware that this is a worldwide phenomenon, that the nature of world civilization has just been changing, is changing, and is affecting the happiness and well-being of millions of people in the advanced world, and often not for the good, often for the bad. How did this happen? It starts, I think, with democracy. In Rome, it started with democracy because a guy who created the, the corn dole was called Clodius, and he wanted to get elected, and he said, instead of having just subsidized corn for the poor, let's make it free. It starts with democracy, because it creates an inherent pressure, democracy, to, to please the people and give them things. Then it goes on from that to uh, uh, politicians coming out with idealism and grand ambitions and people wanting to believe that they can actually do it. So we have phrases like the great society, land fit for heroes. And this, the idealism part of it is good. There's nothing wrong with idealism. Uh, I guess everybody who works in Cato and everyone who works in policy is actually has an ideal to make the world a better place than it was before. So idealism is fine, but it's, um, there are unintended consequences, and idealism can go badly, badly wrong. Um, the French think that we British and Americans are very poor in our attitude to the poor. They think that uh, we have a niggardly, stingy, grudging attitude to welfare, that we only give to people who are in big trouble and then reluctantly. They have an idea of what they call solidarity, whole people united. They have a, a social insurance system which um, covers uh, healthcare and unemployment and all lots of things that more than I think the Americans mean by the phrase social insurance. So it's, it's a global system, everybody's included, it's a kind of big team, and um, the, even though there are big disparities between the rich and poor in France, they think of themselves as having solidarity. So it's a national myth, if you like, a national ideal. And I, um, when, I was, when I visited France, which I did a couple of times, I went down to Marseille. Marseille, I'm sure you know, is a, a big city on the, on the south coast of France. And it was, um, I, I had a, uh, a contact or a friend whose brother was a taxi driver who's, who'd had another, knew another taxi driver. And I asked this taxi driver to take me around the projects, as you would call them, in Marseille, five, to visit five projects. In, in Britain, we call it social, uh, social housing. And in France, they call them HLM, Habitation à Loyer Modéré, moderate rents for uh, habitations. So uh, he took me to the first one. And uh, I, I, he, he wanted me to drive in my hard car. He said he didn't want to take his taxi because he didn't want it to be burnt. Um, so we went in my hard car and uh, we parked. And, uh, and then I was intending to get out. But he was obviously reluctant to get out. But I thought, I'm going to get out anyway. It looks all right. So I got out and started walking along. And he reluctantly followed behind me. And I was saying, yeah, well, it's... Um, it's, these people are obviously not that poor because they are, um, they, there are quite a few cars parked here. And he said, keep your voice down. I said, why? He said, because they'll be listening to us. Who will be listening to us? The gang that controls this project. Um, he more or less dragged me back to the car. We got in the car and started to drive out. Now, there were only two roads going in and out of this uh, project. Uh, which makes it like a fortress, because that's what you do with a fortress. You only have limited entrances. And as we passed the bus stop, he pointed out a, a guy and said, you see the guy in the hoodie? Yeah. He's the shoof. What's the shoof? Shoof is the lookout for the gang. He will telephone when uh, police arrive or when, um, when somebody comes wanting to buy drugs. He gets well paid, you know, he gets, he, he knew, the taxi driver knew the rates of pay for a shoof and said, you know, after a while he'll be able to afford branded goods, he'll have a Rolex and, and new, new trainers, you know, it's, it, that seemed to be the, 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 where the status lay. So then we went on to another place and we just drove through it, we didn't stop, we didn't want any more stopping. Uh, and along the ground level, 
all the apartments in this HLM, every single one was boarded up and covered over with metal, the windows. There was no light going into those apartments. They were they're built for defense. And even on the, on the next floor up, there were, there were apartments with, with boarded up. And then we saw a woman pass by with her, with her child in a buggy. And I said, what is life like in a place like this for a woman? And he said, well, anytime she might find her apartment busted into by the gang, and she'll be told she has to store their drugs or their guns. And of course, she don't, doesn't dare object, let alone tell the police, because that would be suicide. People have actually been reluctant to leave prison in Marseille in case they get shot as they come out. Um, and so we, I, I visited these projects. One of them, he said, no, we're not going in. We're not going in at all, because if we go in, we'll be, we may be stopped in, with the road in front of us, and stop the road behind, there's no escape, and the gang will have us. So we didn't even go into that one. But going back to the first one, that was on a hill high up, overlooking Marseille, long way from anywhere, um, kind of bleak. You know, no, not much, nothing had been looked after around it. It was like sort of in wasteland on a hill, miles away, isolated, alienated, drug gang controlled. And I asked him as we left this place, what was the, what's the name of, of this project? And he said, Solidarity. And that is, that really brought home to me the difference between the idealism and the actuality. What can we do about it? That's another part of the book. Part of the book is describing this, uh, this change and, and comparing different countries. But part of the book is to ask, what can we do about it? Because my previous book was about how welfare states in Britain has caused a lot of harm. I wanted to try and be a bit more positive and think of you know, what, what we can do. Well, the first thing is, I do not think we can get rid of it. I don't think it's democratically possible. I, you know, I don't think the democracy will stand for it. I mean, I would love, uh, that would be my perfect answer, get rid of most of it. But I don't think it's going to happen. So that means the next question is, how can we make the best of it? How can we make the best possible welfare state that a democracy might just accept and might just work not too badly? I know it sounds a really modest ambition, but actually it's a great ambition because it, would, it gives a poss possibility of sustainability. In each, area I make, uh, in each area of welfare states, I make, I make recommendations. In general, it's, you, I think you've got to work with the incentives of people because the ignoring incentives is, is, a, is a typical mistake. You've got to be real about human nature and you've got to put money in the hands of individuals, not contract out. The one guy who really understood human nature was Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. I visited Singapore and had the privilege of meeting the deputy prime minister there. Uh, it's not an ideal society for, for people like us who live in a liberal democracy. But he, he is a legend about how Lee Kuan Yew got to understand how to make good policy. There were riots in Singapore at, uh, early on in its existence. And he saw these riots and he saw people grabbing hold of their bicycles, because most people had bicycles in those days in Singapore, and taking them into the elevators, going up, and then often the elevators didn't stop on every floor, so they'd have to take them up some stairs to their apartments to secure their bicycles. And he drew the very obvious conclusion, people look after their own property. They don't care about other people's property, they really care about their own property. And this informed some of his policies. For example, he didn't subsidize projects. There was very little rented property in, in Singapore. What he subsidized and made compulsory savings for was owning property. So you are compelled in Singapore to, uh, to have a, a savings account which you can use to buy property. You then can get a subsidized mortgage rate, a borrowing rate. The ownership rate in Singapore is the highest in the world. It's over 90%. So poor people own property. They have got their own capital. They've got their own stake in society. I walked around those estates, no car, no danger, no burnt cars, absolutely peaceful. You could walk anywhere you liked and have no sense of danger whatsoever. People own their own property. Another thing he did was insist on health savings accounts. It is compulsory to have a health savings account in Singapore. So... You have, you, don't, you have insurance as well, but it's at the start, you have your own health savings account. 
You build it up compulsory from the moment you get a first employment. And then you can use it, and you can use it to spend at a public hospital, a private hospital. You, you have a choice, because it's your money. And you can get it back later on if you build up enough and, uh, and uh, you can pass it on to your inheritors as well. So you, you care about it. I'm going to be specific now. I mean, my book is quite diffident, but I'll be un-British now and, um, and be quite specific. Here's, here's what I think should be done in welfare states. I think health savings accounts should be compulsory. I think there should be no welfare benefits almost of any kind unless there is what the Germans called help and hassle. That's to say you should be helped into work and you should be hassled into work. Uh, and things like food stamps, disability benefits, they should all be subject to this, help and hassle. I think there should be private schooling available as a right to everybody in a country. Private schooling should be a, 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 a kind of, I don't believe in the word for human rights, but it should be a legal right. As, and that is part of what inspired what they call free schools in Sweden. The idea that you should not be obliged to go to a government school. You should be obliged to go to a school by all means, but it should not have to be a government school. You should have the choice. That was considered part, part of the reason why they, Sweden moved toward having the biggest amount of what you call charter schools. I think that in uh, care for the elderly and care for children, we should minimize the subsidy of what I would provocatively call stranger care. The moment, in many countries, you will get extra money as long as somebody who's not related to the person concerned looks after the child or the elderly person. Now, this is damaging, it breaks up families. And in Spain and elsewhere, they have found policies which will minimize this effect. In November, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Bank of America v. City of Miami, a case that deals with home lending rules and, perhaps oddly, the very definition of the term aggrieved person and whether the City of Miami qualifies as such a person. Thea Brooke-Knight, Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Financial Regulation Studies, discussed the case on Capitol Hill in December. So Bank of America v. Miami is one of the cases in the Supreme Court. Um, this is actually a fair housing case, um, which is what makes it kind of uh, unique. So Miami, um, along with a lot of other municipalities, has come up with this very novel legal theory, which is that um, under the Fair Housing Act, they can sue banks for discriminatory lending process. So the argument is uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America were discriminatory in their housing lending. And the result is that a lot of minority home buyers got loans they couldn't afford, they defaulted on the loans, there's now urban blight, foreclosure, um, increased policing requirements because of the empty housing, et cetera. But the claim that they've made is not that the city is less diverse and therefore has a harm or anything like that. The argument is purely about money. So. The Fair Housing Act says that an aggrieved person can bring a suit. And this is important because we, when we talk about, um, when we interpret statutes, we say when Congress says a word, they mean the word. You can't interpret a statute in a way that that word just kind of is worthless. So there is some case law that says aggrieved person means any person who is hurt. Well, that would that kind of violates the way we tend to interpret statutes, because then why would you need to say aggrieved person? Why don't you just say somebody who has a claim? Um, and in the past, aggrieved person has been interpreted fairly broadly, but always with this sort of underlying racial discrimination piece. So for example, neighbors were able to bring a case saying, um, we were hurt because we don't have the diverse neighborhood that we could have otherwise had. So if you don't rent, units to people of different races, we miss out on the inherent benefit of having a diverse neighborhood. Um, the city of Miami has only argued that they're out money. So they've said, we have a smaller tax base, uh, we've had to spend more money in policing, but they haven't said that they have any sort of discriminatory harm. Um, and I think this is gonna be a real challenge for the court 
to rule in Miami's favor in this case because they would have to be able to articulate a rule that would allow Miami to recover for purely monetary damages but not enable every other business that suffered to also recover. So this is one of the questions that one of the justices asked at oral argument is, why can't the lawn guy recover under this theory? So somebody who has you know, a lawn service business, somebody who has a grocery store, somebody who has a hairdresser, um, if there are fewer people in the neighborhood, you have less business. Aren't they harmed as well? So under this theory, couldn't they also bring a case? And Miami said no, but it, they really couldn't articulate a good rule. So if the court wants to find for Miami in this case, they are going to have to articulate a rule that brings Miami in but excludes the lawn guy. Um, and I don't know what that rule looks like. Um, from a policy perspective, and this is one of the points that we raised in our brief as well, um, there's this, an accountability that comes from a municipality having to ask its taxpayers for money to do things. And if the banks, or if the city is able to just bypass that and get money from these deep pockets, um, these banks, that cuts short that accountability so that the city can go and do all of these projects without av actually having to get its people to pay for them. Um, and Miami is not the only city that has brought this kind of lawsuit. There are a lot of, there are several municipalities who have come up with this theory. They've engaged plaintiff's attorneys who work on a contingency basis, which means it's essentially free to the municipality to bring these court, these cases. Um, the lawyers only get paid if they recover money. Um, so if they win, the lawyers get paid and the cities get money that they can do things with without having to go to their people. Um, so while that's not a legal issue, this is the kind of policy issue that we can bring up in our briefs that the parties obviously couldn't argue. The 2016 election saw new arguments over old ideas of populism and nationalism. But what drives populism in America today? New research from Democracy Fund Voice examines how populism, nationalism, and immigration affected the 2016 election. Mindy Finn, an advisor at Democracy Fund Voice, broke down the data at the Cato Institute in January. Uh, Democracy Fund Voice conceived of this research last summer, and then we published it today to try to understand what was happening in this particular socio-political moment in the country and what is driving rising populism, nationalism, and nativism. We decided to do two, three pieces of research. The first, qualitative, in-depth interviews in a couple places in the country with people who met our screen that had, they had kind of nativist tendencies. Um, the first place we went to was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with people who were, this was last summer, leaning towards voting for Donald Trump, but not exclusively. And then we went to Wilmington, North Carolina, where we did uh, interviews with individuals who were stronger Trump supporters. They had, they, had, they had voted for Donald Trump in the primary, and they also met our nativist screen. We proceeded to do a survey in October, a large-scale national survey, where we asked a series of questions on issues of race, immigration, attitudes towards Islam, America and the direction of America. And then we did a media test where we, we noted that while there was divergent patterns of views on some of these other aspects of other anxieties around race and immigration, that concerns about Islam and, and Muslim Americans were particularly acute. And so we chose uh, those attitudes to do a bit of a test and, and came up with a series of media treatments. They were publicly avail available treatments that we showed to uh, respondents to determine whether there was opportunities to educate uh, or shift attitudes based on exposure to certain treatments. Some key findings that I'll start with, and then I'll, I'll go into some of the data. We found that many Trump supporters in our research feel a nostalgia for a country that may have existed, but, but they may, that they may never have actually experienced, that Make America Great Again worked for a reason, that many Trump supporters in our research have a great fear of decline. They feel alienated from government, community, and the new America with which they don't feel comfortable. Ideals of the melting pot, the American dream, and American generosity of spirit continue to exist among all Americans. 
The strength of these ideals is being tested, though, by the current climate. Many Americans surveyed expressed positive views of immigrants' work ethic, but have concerns that immigrants are no longer willing to learn English, feel patriotic, or assimilate into American culture. Concerns about Muslims is distinct from concerns about racial tensions, and it exists outside of class, education, party, or income, that Muslims are perceived as a threat to many respondents' personal values and a way of life. And finally, that the right message can create statistically significant movement on key attitudes among the most concerned and anxious groups. In summary, these findings to us were a bit of a mixed bag. There are some contradictions within these findings. And so I'll dig in a little bit further on what the data actually showed. So this question of how people view America and, and where we're headed, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? People who work hard and do the right thing can't get ahead in America anymore. This was responded to affirmatively by many of our respondents. Among Republicans and Trump-supporting Republicans in particular, it was 61%. In doing this survey and in our interviews, what we've decided to do is divide this out. What started to emerge was four aspects of cultural anxiety. Views about America generally and the direction we're headed, immigration, race, and Islam. A challenge for American unity in terms of our views on Americanism and social connectedness, among all Americans surveyed, so this is across all Americans, Clinton supporters uh, were somewhat more isolated from Trump supporters than the reverse, but both were isolated. 60% of Clinton supporters say none of their five closest friends is a Trump supporter. Majorities or near majorities of all surveyed say that all five of their closest friends share their race, educational status, or candidate choice. 64% of all surveyed say that none of their five closest friends is an immigrant to the United States. And Americans are more likely to have friends from different religions or income levels than they are to have friends of a different race. Also, uh, in terms of the, when we ask the question of how well do the following statements describe you, I seek out information from people I don't agree with. Americans surveyed are stuck in information silos, as many don't seek information out from others that they don't agree with. How should the new Congress think about defense spending and the very aims of our military? Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, told a Capitol Hill audience in January what spending reforms the feds should adopt. Uh, U.S. military spending today is about 36 percent higher in real terms than in 2000. 36% higher in real terms than in 2000. So remember that when you hear people say uh, that military spending has been slashed or has never been lower. Uh, nevertheless, most people here in Washington believe that we should be spending far more. They disagree on where to find the money. Uh, to oversimplify, grossly, uh, Democrats would find the money by raising taxes. Republicans would cut other spending and uh, divert the proceeds to the military. I think most members, uh, I think, would be content with uh, increasing the deficit, uh, though few will come out and say it. They, the pay-for-it-later approach, after all, does allow them to avoid spelling out any painful trade-offs, that is, things that they would take away from people that they like. Uh, there is a different approach. Cato scholars take seriously the need for rethinking our ends, not merely the means. Rethinking our ends. The Defense Department is misnamed. If we were serious about defending the United States, we would have a different military with very different missions. Uh, it would be smaller, uh, based in the United States or U.S. territories. It would deploy to places as needed, not attempt to be in all places all the time. Uh, a different grand strategy, what we and others call restraint, would involve the U.S. military in fewer wars, and a restraint-oriented military, while still the finest in the world by a wide margin, uh, would be far less costly than our current one. Uh, we can afford to rethink our foreign policy because, and reorient our military because the policy that we've uh, pursued for many decades isn't necessary to define, defend vital U.S. interests, and it will become increasingly difficult to sustain given low public support for it. The American people have consistently questioned the need for a vast forward-deployed military focused on defending other countries, most of whom can and should defend themselves. 
Of course, President-elect during the course of his campaign hinted at some necessary adjustments to U.S. foreign policy. He questioned the wisdom of nation-building, uh, of regime change wars followed by nation-building. He doubted that the benefits of America's alliances always outweigh the costs. And he spoke to the American people who have grown uh, tired of costly overseas adventures that don't deliver on the promise of greater security. Such positions were uh, unpopular, to say the least, with a broad swath of the foreign policy establishment, including, of course, a number of former senior officials in Republican administrations. Challenging the elite consensus is difficult, uh, but Donald Trump did it anyway. And he was rewarded in November, or at least it didn't cost him, uh, as best we can tell. But even if President Trump does not carry through on his promises to focus on America first, and even if he doesn't revisit our global military posture, he can still fulfill his pledge to make the Department of Defense operate more efficiently. Uh, this will not be easy either. It will require him, and especially members of Congress, to take on entrenched interests that defend the status quo. These common sense reforms enjoy broad support within the think tank community, but they have been stymied in Congress because they will impose near-term costs and risks on a few political constituencies. So briefly, I just want to mention four reforms that can and should be implemented, even if the United States doesn't revisit its overarching grand strategy that is designed to discourage, designed to discourage other countries from defending themselves and their interests. Four ideas. One, the Pentagon is carrying excess overhead. That means bases. We have too many bases. The military simply has more land than it needs here in the United States, and that's true even if the military grows in the next few years. However, selling the idea that closing military bases is good for the military and therefore the right thing to do won't work politically. Our most senior generals and admirals have repeatedly requested permission to close unneeded bases, and Congress has steadfastly refused these requests. Such intransigence means, quite simply, the military is spending money on things that it doesn't need, and that is taking away from its other priorities. It's a clear case where parochialism, uh, among some members, is undermining U.S. security. Ultimately, if the Trump administration is serious about reforming the way the military does business and takes on this task of closing unneeded bases, it must convince people here on Capitol Hill that the communities facing the prospect of a base closure can mitigate the painful near-term economic effects. I've done extensive research on what has happened at a number of military bases around the country after closure. Indeed, it's a mistake to think of them, base closures, as closures. In most cases, bases are opened to the communities who are able to transform them to non-military uses. Some have done so quite quickly. Everyone who is serious about reducing excess overhead in the Department of Defense should familiarize themselves with these cases. I'm happy to share my findings with you. Anyone who asks, you can also consult with the Pentagon's Office of Economic Adjustment, which also monitors this work. Two, base closures will help the Pentagon tackle another vexing problem, a civilian workforce that has grown far too large relative to the number of men and women serving on active duty. The Pentagon now employs some 55 civilians for every 100 uniformed personnel, the highest ratio ever. And the civilian contractor workforce is nearly as large. President-elect Trump should peer under that rock, too. Three. Reforming the military's pay and benefit system would reap long-term savings and bring a woefully out-of-date system into the 21st century. The Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission noted that today's young people have different expectations than earlier generations accustomed to long-term employment and private sector pension. As a joint letter signed by scholars from 10 different think tanks explained, if we fail to curb the growth in military compensation costs, they will continue to grow as the defense budget shrinks, crowding out funds needed for training, modernization, and for the replacement of worn-out equipment." Unquote. Fourth, and lastly, if President-elect Trump is serious about reforming procurement, as he has hinted with his critical comments toward Boeing's Air Force One and Lockheed Martin's F-35, among others, 
he will find a number of allies here in Washington. No one disputes the Pentagon spends a lot of money on hardware. I believe we spend too much, and I'm not alone, uh, but ultimately that's a judgment call. However, everyone, those who want to spend more or the same or less, would all prefer to get more bang for the bucks. Alas, no one agrees on how to get there. As already noted, Congress often forces the Pentagon to spend money on things it doesn't need or want. Then on top of that, the military's requirements process is a recipe for rampant cost growth. In an era of defense dominance, when the small, smart, and many is increasingly capable of thwarting or even in some cases defeating the exquisite and few, the United States must get serious about extracting more useful military power at less cost. Now in its eighth edition, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers sets the standard in Washington for reducing the power of the federal government and expanding freedom. The 80 chapters offer issue-by-issue -issue blueprints for promoting individual liberty, free markets, and peace. Providing both in-depth analysis and concrete recommendations, the handbook is an invaluable resource for anyone interested in securing liberty and limiting government. It's available online for reading and downloading at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.